0: Welcome to Building Belonging, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, everything, every time, but not all at once. Tanya martinez Galanucci, Executive Director of the Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. Angie Avila, ODEB Manager of Development and Communications. And Mary Ellen LaRosa, ODEB Diversity and Inclusion Coordinator. Speak with Lisette Duran, Senior ESG Associate at Paul Weiss. Lisette shares her experience of being lifted up in the journey of her career.
1: I was pleasantly surprised at the folks that were like, come with me, let me show you that you can belong here.
0: How she has claimed a place in new spaces, even while embracing her identity.
1: The key is to have a mentor that's going to have the hard conversations with you, but have it in a way that is loving, and that comes from this idea that you don't have a deficit
0: and how she has safeguarded her sense of identity in the spaces that she chooses.
1: These experiences, these identities can exist in one person and they should be valued. And even if you don't value them, you may not
0: comment. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's Tanya martinez Galanucci.
2: Welcome back to Building Belonging. Today we are joined with my good friend, the other half of the uptown campus of CLS, Lisette Duran, because we were up in Inwood and Dykeman when we were in law school. Lisette has graciously agreed to come here and talk to us about all the ways she's built belonging in the legal industry. I mean, Obviously, you could talk to us about so much more than that, but you are so gracious to do that for us because you are a superstar and an inspiration. But with that, my name is Tanya martinez Galonucci. My pronouns are she, her. I am the executive director of the Office for
3: Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. And I'm going to hand it over to Angie. Hi, my name is Angie Avila. I am the manager of development and communications with Odeeb. I use pronouns she, her, and I'm going to throw it over to Mary Ellen.
4: Thank you, I'm Mary Ellen LaRosa, pronouns are she, they, uh, and I am the diversity and inclusion coordinator for the office. And Lissette?
1: Thank you so much, I am so excited for this opportunity. Like Tanya said, my name is Lissette Duran, my pronouns are she, her. I am currently a senior ESG associate at Paul Weiss, a law firm in New York City. My family's from the Dominican Republic. I grew up in Inwood, like Tanya said, that second campus uptown. I uh, grew up within Inwood and Harlem, then had the opportunity to leave New York City for high school. I went to boarding school in Massachusetts, a school called Phillips Academy Andover, then went to UPenn for undergrad and studied law in, at Columbia Law School with with Tanya. Mm-hmm.
2: Listen, the first question that we like to ask everyone who joins our podcast, as I'm sure you've noticed, is what does belonging
1: mean to you? I think it's an Excellent question. I actually sat with it for a while and actually read through some stuff because I was like, what does belonging mean to me? I came up with this. To me, belonging means being comfortable enough to bring parts of you, the parts you want to share into a space. You feel comfortable because you're not going to be judged. You're going to be supported. And I say that because we're using a lot or we talk a lot about bringing your whole self to work or to these other spaces. And I'm not sure I completely agree with the notion of having to bring your whole self. It almost feels like others are entitled Mm. to your whole self all the time. I like to think of it as it's about you. It's about what aspects of your identity you want to bring into a space, what aspects of your identity you need to bring into a space to thrive and making sure those those spaces support those parts of your identity. So belonging to me is dynamic. It changes. It grows with you. It changes with your environment. And it's something I think people should be thinking about and talking about often.
2: Amazing. And I'm so glad you brought up that it is dynamic and that it changes and the environment does matter because I think that's what we're really going to get into today. You, like many folks in your position, are like a chameleon. You learn to adapt and change and think about even yourself differently to fit in and to belong. And what parts of you stay and what parts you fight about and what parts you want to show the world? We want to get into a little bit more of that. Maybe before we start diving into the questions, because I know that we, we have a ton of questions for you, maybe you yourself can give us a little background of what your trajectory was.
1: So my journey starts in Inwood. Most people think about it as Washington Heights, but it's a little north of that in Manhattan. Some people confuse it for the Bronx, but it, it's not that either. I went to public school there. In terms of my identity, I never really thought about it because although New York is considered to be incredibly diverse, the Washington Heights, Inwood area was predominantly Dominican. Most of my classmates were Dominican. There was a sprinkle of other folks here and there, but I didn't have to think about anything because I was just like everybody else. Like I said, I had an opportunity to go to private boarding school in Massachusetts, Phillips Academy, Andover, where I really did have to think about who I was because who I was was not prominent. And also it messed with some of my held beliefs. So for example, in Washington Heights, Inwood, a lot of the restaurant owners were also the folks that worked inside the shops. So Elsa's, Elsa works inside there and chops up the chicharron. And then I went to Andover where it's, you know, five minutes away from the second largest Dominican city, Lawrence. And at Andover, a lot of the staff was Dominican. And I saw the interaction sometimes between the students and the staff. And there wasn't that understanding that these these folks too had value outside of just the service aspect of what they were providing, mm-hmm. right? That was a shock because I never had to think about that. I never had to think of them as the help as opposed to like business owners and folks who made a living for their families. That was just not an identity that I was familiar with. And then- From Andover, I went to Penn. I was looking for something closer to New York, more city-like, but still not New York. Had a wonderful time there, grappled with a bunch of different identities as well when I was meeting more international folks, having conversations with Latinos from all over. And then from Penn, took two years off, worked as a litigation paralegal, and then went to Columbia Law School for law school. And then from there, I've been working at Paul Weiss ever
2: since. Amazing. Okay, so we're going to dissect all these places. Because like I said, you're a freaking chameleon and you've been traveling in and out of these places and you can fit in and you can stand out. And there's so many things to talk about how you do that. And I think inquiring minds need to know, especially folks navigating it for themselves. So I'm going to kick it off to Angie who's going
3: to get us started. Thank you so much, Tanya. We do want to go in to the workings of your journey. So starting off with your home base in Wood, I want to know a little bit more about your time and what that community felt like for you. Of course.
1: I actually really enjoy talking about it because I don't have an opportunity to talk about where I'm from very often. My mom actually just got me a shirt that has all of the streets in the surrounding area. It looks amazing. It says Dykeman, it's says Thayer, Sherman. It's fantastic. I grew up on Thayer Street, And basically, everybody around me looked like me. They had big curly hair. They had parents who immigrated from the Dominican Republic. They were all going to the neighborhood public schools. There were two or three in the area. Basically, we all followed the same rules. You couldn't go to other people's house before your parents were able to inspect it, that kind of thing. And so everyone knew. Everybody understood each other. There was no real conversation about who you are independent of those things, right? So I never had to really think about who Lisette is outside of being a Thayer girl who goes to PS 152. The only aspect of my identity that I did think about actually was that I thought I was a little more well-off than other folks (laughs) in the sense that we didn't live in the projects. I was project adjacent, but we didn't live in the projects. I spent every summer in the Dominican Republic with my grandmother and we got suitcases of new clothes We had the game systems, we had a Game Boy, we had every book that I wanted to read, which was my big part. Everything that we needed, we had. And so I considered myself very wealthy, actually. Then fast forward to Andover, where, you know, folks were buying Louis Vuitton luggage sets after failing one exam, and I got $10 from my mom to buy ice cream. I was like, oh, wait, maybe I'm not wealthy. And I had to start asking those questions, which... Thank goodness my mom is understanding. She's like, what do you mean? You're not poor. That was probably the first time that I questioned something about my space on there, my space in, in what it was really when I took a step out of it and I got to see myself in comparison to other folks that didn't look like me, that didn't have those same understandings and teachings whose house you could go to without other parents visiting it first.
2: I love that story, Lisette, because you are perfectly describing someone's bubble bursting. Right. And I don't mean that in terms of like your idealistic idea of who you are, what you are. I literally mean like the bubble of where you grew up and the parameters around your existence, what you knew to be. Right. And for a lot of folks, that doesn't happen until much later in life or when they're finally have to leave that bubble. For me, it happened in college, I think, in many ways. But that experience, I think most, if not all people can relate to. Obviously, there's different identities and different intensity. But I think everyone has a moment where they realize that what you've been living isn't true for everyone and everywhere. And even the way you look at yourself changes. Imagine what it's like for the folks who
1: still haven't left that bubble. That's what we encounter in this work a lot. Absolutely. I think having had a bubble to begin with, Mm -hmm. I appreciate how not exhausting it is to live in. Once you come out of it and you have to ask yourself all these questions, and you have to think about it all the time, that is exhausting. Yeah. So sometimes when I go to there, I try and act like I've always been in Thayer, <laughs> just because it's a nice break.
3: I so appreciate your sentiments around your bubble. Growing up, I knew about the rich and the famous, but to me, they were far, far away rich and famous. And I just assumed Middle class, working class, we were all one in the same. You know, it wasn't actually until high school that it kind of smacked me in the face. I invited a new girl from high school over to my house. I had always invited friends over. And as soon as she walked into my house, her first words were like, Oh, your house is so small. It's so cozy. How cute. It's so cute. And it took me a second. I'm like, Am I? not as wealthy as everyone else. And then I, well, I was 15 years old and coming to the realization that even in different working classes, there are levels. And in that moment, I was, I felt as though I was put in my place and obviously a minor, you internalize that. So hearing other people tell their stories of seeing differences between your peers is kind of eye-opening. So I, I really do appreciate you Uh, sharing that bit.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Thinking about my Andover experience and how I internalized that, I remember for the first time had to play sports, right? And so every trimester you had to play a sport. I played volleyball in the fall, basketball in the winter, and I got basketball shoes, but I didn't get volleyball shoes. And I'm sure my mom could afford them, but she's like, you don't need both. You got one. And somehow I finagled her to put more money into my account. And then I went ahead and bought volleyball sneakers anyway, because I wanted to match the teens sneakers. And I wanted to get that Nalgene bottle that cost like $45 for no reason. And my mom was livid, right? Because I was trying to figure out how do I belong in this space? What it is that I needed to belong, you know, on my volleyball team, on my basketball team. Whereas my mom was just trying to tell me that I already belonged. I didn't need those things. But it was this internal battle of even if I felt like I belonged inside, I was like, I need to walk the walk. And I need to talk the talk. This is what everyone's wearing and doing.
2: And that's the exhaustion you were talking about, right? Because Correct. it that takes time and energy and willpower and all kinds of processing. And when you are a middle school, look because you were a middle school at the time, right?
1: High school. Oh, high school. High school for Andover, yeah. Still, still.
2: <laughs> high school, like your brain is still developing. You don't have all the coping mechanisms and tools and guidance that you need to work through that. It's a lot. It's a lot to carry. And it starts, so yeah.
1: Absolutely. And one thing I'll add, so I got to Phillips Academy Andover through an academic enrichment program called the Teak Fellowship. I love this organization because they focus on education. They also focus on arts. Organization is now 25 plus years old. One of the aspects that they wanted to help families and students with was cultural capital, right? And I juxtapose the conversation about ju- cultural capital with my story about buying a water bottle and sneakers. That was my attempt at cultural capital. What Teak did was actually internalize, teach this in a way that made sense. So, for example, they knew that sending students from these neighborhoods and these experiences to these predominantly white and very affluent institutions, more than just getting us up to academic par and ready for the academic rigor that comes with being in those spaces, but it was also just navigating the social spaces. So what they did was take us to Broadway shows so that we can talk about theater. We went to different corporate offices so we can learn about what different businesses do and the various levels in the offices and everything that comes with that. And then we also read the newspaper and they acknowledge or they realize that for a lot of the students, their families were immigrants and those immigrant newspapers are flat. They're sort of like books, but that none of us had the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal in our houses. And those newspapers look different. You have to open them differently and opening them on the train, for example, is an art. So they did so much as teaching us how to open a New York Times, a Wall Street Journal on the train, and then helping us understand what we were reading so that when we went off to these schools, even though we couldn't talk about our yacht outings or our country club outings or our summer houses, we knew what was happening in the world. We knew what the countries were called and where they were located and what was important to a bunch of different industries. And we can talk about the different you know, restaurants and Broadway shows we've been to. We had something to bring to the table that we also enjoyed and that we also partook. As opposed to just me buying some new sneakers, this was something that I could passionately discuss and discuss in a way that was substantive.
2: That's amazing. And so intentional and so thoughtful. Because it also, it's providing you with tools without placing judgment on what you already bring to the table and i think that's where a lot of these programs and initiatives fail right they treat folks like they're coming in with deficits and it's not a deficit it's not a deficit that you haven't gone to a broadway show or that you didn't know how to read the new york times you were getting a different set of tools and cultural capital where you're from and and through your networks and family and there's you know it can be empowering to share that with folks. But I think sometimes the balance is a little off and it sounds like your experience
1: was very well balanced and empowering. I completely agree. And I've also had experiences where those missed the mark a little bit, right? Where the intentions were good, but the conversation ended up being, you must change your hair, right? You have to straighten it or you have to wear XYZ thing in order to be considered a professional. I think that gets a little bit Tricky, but I think as you're navigating all of these identities, the key is to have a mentor that's going to have the hard conversations with you, but have it in a way that is loving and that comes from this idea that you don't have a deficit, but that there are things that you don't know that might be helpful.
4: Set in high school, you started working at Paul Weiss. I wanted to ask if you wanted to speak a little bit more about where you started how you came to be there, and talk about some of the, the professional relationships you had while you were there as a high schooler.
1: So yes, that's my my big secret. I started at Paul Weiss when I was 17. It was during the summers of my junior and senior year of high school. And I was a receptionist. I was the first person that folks saw clients, attorneys. I would get there bright and early, and I was there Monday through Friday, I think June to August. I actually got this position through the Teak Fellowship because every summer you had to have a job. It was either a volunteer opportunity for one year, a private internship, and then a public interest internship. So this was my private internship. I had never been a corporate setting like this. I had never had this kind of responsibility. I remember freaking out when I had to page people. So back then you still had to Page people, and I had never heard my voice on a on a paging system, and I sounded like a chipmunk. And folks immediately called me like, "Who is there? A child working on our system?" I love it because <laughs> my voice is so high. It's like I promise you, I can work here. In terms of my experience, I loved it. I knew that I wanted to be an attorney since I was basically in second grade, and so being just in the proximity of lawyers was incredible. I took every advantage to speak to folks, to ask them questions as they came in. And again, because I was 17, I looked like a child. Folks were very excited to talk to me. And I you know, I didn't understand. That I have no one in my family who is, who is a lawyer. I had only seen lawyering on TV, really. And so I didn't know what a big law firm was. I didn't know the structure. I didn't know the people. And so I basically relied on the staff who were my family. So the, my fellow receptionists, the administrative staff, the mailroom guys, the reprographic guys, they were amazing. And they helped me navigate that space. And they actually helped me be a professional, right? You're talking about a 17-year-old from Inwood. And over those two summers, I learned you know, how to introduce myself, what the elevator pitch was how to reach out to people and start that conversation and why it was important to do that, how to follow up with people and sending them emails after they spent their time talking to me. My favorite story actually is one of the uh, receptionists there gave me a list of attorneys that she thought I should speak with. And on this list was Ted Wells. He is you know, big time partner at Paul Weiss. She did not add positions next to these names. She didn't add descriptions. She was just like, go talk to these people. So I show up, 17s, with some sort of H&M ensemble that I thought looked professional. And I knock on Ted Wells' door, and he looked at me, and he's like, whose child are you? And I was <laughs> like, no, I'm actually here working as a receptionist, and I would love to understand what a complex commercial litigator is, because that was what it said in his profile, that that's what he did. He thought I was adorable and was like, sure. And this man who was incredibly busy, who I learned later on was his big time partner and, was, you know, incredibly sought out for, took the time to speak to a 17 year old who didn't know anything at all. And from there, he gave me books on Thurgood Marshall, He gave me books on Judge Carter, on Brown v. Board. He's like, if you want to be a lawyer, you got to learn these foundational things about your history and your access to rights. And this is Love what that. you need to be the best version of the lawyer you can be. From there, I was like, okay, this is it. This is the environment that I can be in. If this is the kind of lawyer I can be, and this is the way I can give get back, sign
2: me up. And now you should officially be the poster child for all diversity pipeline programs because <laughs> this is what it's about. The access, the interactions, the real talk, the opening the door and letting other folks in. Yes. Right? Like this is the goal this is what we're trying to do with all these programs you are literally the poster child and I mean you're perfect for this you're gorgeous and look like a model anyway so it's perfect let's just put you on let's put you on the
1: poster please please I'm available
2: (laughs) (laughs) I need a new headshot anyway Um, oh girl don't even get me started on headshots (laughs) don't even get me started I have a follow-up though well that's how you started at Paul Weiss but you know between us girls it's been a long time since you were 17 so how, how did that
1: end up being your gig? Walk us through that part. Once I was introduced to this space, I was like, okay, when I go to law school, I want to come back to a space like this. Mainly, I was set on going to a place with a lot of resources. So one thing I learned early on is that resources really make a difference. Going to Andover meant that I had a full science building and I can do All of the things. We we had a building for every single focus area. We had a language building, we had a language learning center where I was speaking French into computers, and that's how I learned it. Then going to Penn, all of the resources, right? And so I was like, I want to go to a law school that has a lot of resources, and then I want to go to a job that has a lot of resources. And I knew that closed the window for a some opportunities because they're not as well funded when I left Paul Weiss over those summers I was taught by the admin again the receptionist that you have to keep up right that a mentorship relationship goes both ways and so I continued to email Ted he became part of my family he asked for grades he he had the conversations with me if the grades terrifying oh absolutely (laughs) If my, if my college grades weren't up to snuff, we'd have a conversation about it. it. was helpful. Having someone that I knew was invested in me in this very, very deep and substantive way made me work harder. From there, again, continued the relationship. I came back college summer and did an internship, I remember, I think maybe with recruiting. And I guess so that was a lot more fun. I got to go to the events. And then I decided that I wanted to take some time in between college and law school because I'm one of four kids and I'm four years older than my two brothers and then seven years older than my sister. And if you do the math, we would all be in paying schools at the same time. And for my sets of parents that are remarried, it would have been a lot, a very significant financial burden to have all four of us at a institution where you needed to pay. I wanted to make sure my brothers had the college experience that I had where I was the only the only kid where my parents had to think about uh, my needs and paying for my things. So I applied for to become a litigation paralegal at Paul Weiss and there with that I was able to my one of my brothers pledged a a Latin fraternity and I was able to help him buy the things that he needed for that. I helped my other brother pay for his books. So in the I took those two years worked as a litigation paralegal and got to know the system more from the lens of a legal professional, right? So then by that point, I knew what kinds of questions to ask. I learned the culture. I learned the terminology. I learned what law looked like in practice, the long hours, the, the hierarchy, the structures. And then when I went to law school, I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. I'm signing up. I know it's hard, but it felt incredibly rewarding for the folks that did it. So that's what I wanted
2: there is so much gold in everything you just shared i don't even know where to begin like first of all that you could think about the needs of your family unit and that that came first and you were like i need to make sure my siblings get their shot at this amazing education and the opportunities it brings and i just like i'm sure everyone has thanked you but i just want to acknowledge what an act of love that is It's not common. I don't think everyone does this. I don't think everyone thinks this way. I do think a lot of it is cultural. I think a lot of it has to do with where we grew up and the way that we think about community and helping our people. And you're just such a goddess. And it's just so beautiful. The other thing I want to point out is just like the tenacity. You weren't going to stop at this like reception area experience. You were like, no, let me take it to the next step. And then let me take it to the next step after that. And let me pull in all the people. And the fact that so many people were part of your education and you give them all the credit, you give the flowers to the people who deserve it, to the admin, because I think that's a part of our stories that is so untold. How many of the folks in the sidelines who really lift us up and teach us and are like, you know what, mama, I know you, I'm going to look out for you. Let me teach you. Like that person who gave you the name of all these attorneys, God bless her. Guardian
1: angel. Absolutely. She's
2: your guardian angel. That is amazing.
1: When I talk to law students who are thinking about what law firms to go to, it's exactly what I tell them. I'm like, it takes a village to get something out, right? So you can write an excellent brief, but if you don't bring it down to your mailroom or your repo in time to make the copies that the judge asked for, right? If you don't then get those copies to your mailroom to get it FedEx because your judge right. needs a physical copy, right? Or you don't get it to the managing attorney's office in time because they're the ones that file it onto the docket. If none of those things goes right, then your brief is fantastic, but it's just sitting on your desk, right? You're not winning that case. You're not making the best argument. You're not representing your client. It really does take a village. And for these law students, I'm always like, go into these spaces and see how everyone interacts with everyone else, Mm -hmm. right? If you walk down the halls, are people laughing with their admins? Do they know the mailroom guy that comes in every single day to deliver their mail on that floor, Do you know who the Repro folks are? Can you give them a call? Because at least in my experience at Paul Weiss, the mailroom folks, they will hold up the FedEx person. I think the deadline's like six o'clock. They're like, hey, did you see that basketball game? Wasn't it great? (laughs) And they will be texting you like, "I I can get you three more minutes, but you gotta come down here, right? So you can get that thing sent off so that you can look really good to the client. You can look really good to the partner. And I feel like those are, the heroes of the story, the unsung heroes of, of the story, and particularly yep. for folks of color, because staff is mostly of color, yep, yep. there's this different relationship.
2: Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are going
1: to tell you that maybe you put the binders in the wrong color for that partner and they'll help you move all of the papers to the right binder, or that maybe there was a really heated conversation. You should come back later. They'll
2: give you all of that. and yeah. And I love that. The wealth of knowledge that you had even going into law school, because at this point in your trajectory, you haven't even got to law school yet, right? Like yes, You haven't exactly. even got to law school, but you already know how these institutions work. And that is what first-generation people lack most of the time. And here you are, a first-generation person, and you got all of that even before applying to law school. And again, as I'm saying, poster child for diversity pipeline programs, because I will tell you, I did not do any of the pipeline programs and even going into law school, I still didn't understand what the industry was, how it functioned, especially not big law.
1: I found out about big law in big law. And I remember <laughs> we had a conversation, Tanya, because you had come into law school saying, you know, I'm doing public interest, I'm doing education oh, yeah. and and nothing else. And I was like, well, you Listen, who do... corrupted me. You heard it here first. Yes. You heard it. No, go ahead. <laughs> like, tell you the, tell do, the story. <laughs> you can do big law and do these things, right? Because- Mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're from the same neighborhood. I was like, listen, you can feed yourself and feed others. Yeah. You don't have to choose. We had this whole conversation. I yeah. told her about all my experiences. And I was like, the pro bono work I got to do was litigation paralegal, the pro bono work I knew that associates did and the relationships that you can make within the big law firm and also the doors you can open for the folks that yes. want to go directly Correct. there and maybe don't have that access. That's right. And this is a testament to
2: all the knowledge that you had already built up and to who you are as a person. You, again, are one of those people who hold the door open. And we're going to talk about this in another episode of Podcast School because we have to talk about the other group of people who open a door, close it, lock it, <laughs> like, throw away the keys. There are another set of people out there. But you are on the right side of history. And I appreciate it because you really were. You were like, look, Tanya, somebody's going to get this money. Yeah. It might as well be you. Yep. <laughs> and
1: I was like, you know what? you're not wrong (laughs) you're not wrong Think again about lack of resources right all these organizations need resources need support and i was like you can be in the room where those conversations are happening right and i can say hey you know there's this organization that does all this amazing work that you don't know about it a latinx organization a black organization let's throw some resources that way can i grab some associates can we send some money and being part of those conversations
2: is amazing A hundred percent. No, it it completely changed my worldview. And I think if I could talk to Tanya back then, it would be to explain that there isn't this binary. It's not good or bad. You could do good everywhere. You could be thinking about these issues everywhere in any position. It's a choice. And the other part is, guess what? And I think I said this in the last episode, but the not-for-profit world, when I had my little stint... Before this, obviously, because this is my dream. But before this, when I had my little stint, it was whack.com. Mm-hmm. I was, and, and I not that the work wasn't good, because the work is good, and you're doing good work, but the problems, oh, yeah. the problems with the isms, the racism, the sexism, all the nonsense still exists there, but you're getting paid a lot less. <laughs> you got to pay for that therapy somehow, <laughs> and just, just being real, much harder to pay for that when you're making it so much less, but yeah, anyway, not-for-profit people do not come for me. I do not want to be canceled. <laughs> Just speaking my truth, have your
1: experiences. But anyway, with that, I think we're finally ready to talk about law school. The journey seems very long. It was sort of intentional. Going back real quick to this idea of belonging and me as a kid in this corporate space, I came in with this idea that I did not belong. And so I did not have an expectation that I would. And I was pleasantly surprised at the folks that were like, come with me. Let me show you that you can belong here and that it's going to be your own journey to figure out what that means. But let me, let me show you what it means to me to belong. And let me show you what it means to me to thrive in this space. And let me give you those tools. And so left the space feeling very empowered. And then I get to Columbia and it's, it's a very different place. It is very large I mean, I, I went to, to law school, you know, having worked for two years, and it was a means to an end, right? I didn't think of Columbia Law School as another way to extend my college experience. I, I didn't see it as a sort of social networking opportunity. I saw it as, okay, I need to get through this so that I can be a lawyer and do what I want to do. I lived off campus on that second campus uptown. And I didn't engage as much, but I had already had this very long relationship with Columbia because my dad has worked there for the past 20-something years in print services. So now I am this Ivy League educated with Paul Weiss corporate background student on campus whose dad works at print services and delivers the printed products all throughout campus. And it occurred to me, the first thing that I thought about when I stepped into the class and I started hearing these conversations where there were a lot of isms, Mm -hmm. very clear, was that I would probably have a very visceral reaction to anyone disrespecting my father as he walked in, whether pushing boxes or in his uniform. So I made sure that one of the first things I did was a PSA. It was like, this is my dad. This is Mr. Duran. You're going to see him with his boxes. You're going to see him with his print services gear. And if you don't open the door, you know, if you see him struggling, if a box falls off and you don't help and I see you, we're going to have some problems. Good for you, girl. And Good it, for you. <laughs> I love that. This I felt, you know, very, very strong in this. And then I talked to my dad, who's a complete introvert. So he's like, what? What do you mean you told everybody? And so he had, you know, for three years, someone who was calling at him all day every day when he walked around the law school and he's like i don't remember anyone's name and everyone seems to know me but it was it was my way of being like these experiences and these identities can exist in one person and they should be valued and even if you don't value them you may not comment and so like folks Thankfully, there was never an issue, but, you know, folks understood that I could have all of these identities and belong at Columbia and do well.
2: And you provided them a free education. I, so I did. That is really, <laughs> really kind of you. No, I can attest. Your father is such a breath of fresh air. And even after you left, because you were a 3L when I was a 1L. So we only overlapped one year, unfortunately, at school. But after that, me and your dad, we would meet up. We would say hi. We would give each other hugs. We would text each other. He would always check in. He's like, what do you need? This is why I'm talking about the other folks in the story, the other folks who are cheering you on. I'm also thinking I want to give Bernice a shout out at CLS who held us down. You know?
1: Absolutely.
2: She who still was... asks
1: about us to this day. Obviously. Girl, we
2: we have a group chat. We have a group chat. I send my, the pictures of my kids. But Bernice, you know, she knew the struggle. She knew that I had to go back to the project to live with my mom for like the last year. I was literally struggling. You know what she would do? Mama, I have a sandwich for you. Come pass by. (laughs) Mama, I have some leftover food. Come here. And you know, God bless our angels, right? Because they're the ones who behind the scenes taking care of us. And you know, this is just a PSA for y'all out there. Take care of your people, right? Right. There's so many people who are cheering us along and there's so many more people than you even realize. Take care of those people. Because they're taking care of you, right? No, I love the story of your dad. That's it's amazing.
1: My dad's the best. He's still there. If you see him, say hi. Yeah, hey, shout have, out. We have the same. We have the same face. So I you really would, do. You would recognize him if you saw. As I was thinking about all the aspects of my life and this idea of belonging, right? I attribute my feeling of belonging in these spaces to those people. That is the through line for me. The identity that I like to bring to all of my spaces is my the importance of family and the importance of my village and, and those friendships that aren't different from family. I cannot be in a place that will not let me take care of my family when I need to. Mm-hmm. And so when I talked about this idea of making sure you think about what identities you want to bring to a space and be supported, yes, for me, it's really important for me to show up in my big curly hair, right? I don't want people touching it, asking questions about it, right? All of that. But what's most important for me is to have this understanding that my aunt is not extended family. So if she is in the hospital, I'm going to the hospital and I'm going to need those hours, right? And I don't need you to ask me if she has other kids that can take her or why am I so close with my aunt. We shouldn't have this discussion. She's family. I need that. I'm going. And so those are the parts of me that I need in order to feel like I belong in a space. And that's how I try and make those spaces fit what I need. Amazing.
3: Lisette, how has your identity affected your ability to find belonging in these spaces?
1: Whatever my primary identity is when I enter that space, I think when my other identities are questioned or brought up, it has changed the way I looked at belonging. So for example, when I went to Andover, I was very much a Dominican because that's what my background was. But at Andover, I was a Latina, and I needed to grapple with what that meant. And that was so new, that was new language, it had new everything. And I had to deal with what that meant for me and what that meant for my family. Latino is also not a term that my family used. And then, you know, when I got to Penn, I learned about the different relationships between Latinos. Dominicans are transnational. A Dominican from an island is the same thing as a Dominican from the States. But I learned, for example, about the conflict with Puerto Ricans. And I learned about the conflict from other other countries where if you were hyphenated, if you're Mexican and versus Mexican-American, there were different cultural expectations. There was a different relationship to these things. And so I was trying to navigate whether I was Dominican, Dominican-American, what that meant. Also having the conversations around my blackness because I didn't look like the non-Caribbean Latinos and then that was something that I further explored in law school because I felt like the conversations around Latinidad were about aspects that weren't necessarily part of my identity or my experience and I didn't feel like I fit so for example at Columbia I wasn't actually that involved in LASA because most of the members I didn't think were talking about my experience or what my family went through And it didn't make me less Latina, but I did have to navigate what aspects of my identity I wanted to bring to the table. I thought it was just going to be too much to have to have the conversation about what a Black Latina was in that space, because there aren't any. There aren't that many in the industry to begin with, so there aren't that many at the law school. So navigating, every time I had to add something or bring out something of my identity to the conversation, I had to think about how and whether I wanted to, and whether it was a place I wanted to belong in. For Lhasa, I was like, that's okay. I'm going to go to some events, but I'm not going to be super active here. I'll be active in Balsa." And then I sort of picked and choose what made sense for what I wanted to do and how I wanted to exist in those spaces.
2: And that goes to intentionality and thinking about what parts of yourself you want to share. Because you're right. People aren't entitled to all of you. And I think when we say that you should be able to bring your whole self There needs to be more emphasis on the should. It's not that you're not bringing it because it's not allowed. Right. Not because you're not bringing it because you're going to be ostracized. It's like, you don't need to have all of me. There's parts of me that are for me. There are parts of me that are just for my kids. There's parts of me that are just for my partner. Just having the option is what we're fighting for. (laughs) Exactly.
4: I think that goes to uh, my next point, is once you've found belonging, is it always there or is it something you have to keep working at? something you have to be intentional about maintaining?
1: Once you found belonging,
4: it's something you have to work on. I think
1: that we're having this conversation at all of the levels right now. You have it at an individual level. You have it at a comp- level. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is not, If there's no end goal. There's no specific end goal. It is just a journey. It is, you know, step by step that you're going in a general direction. And that's what belonging is too. There may be a time or a day or a moment where you're like, you have this sort of exhale that you belong in this space, you belong in this conversation, you belong in on this team, but everything changes, right? You can have an experience that makes you, your identities, a little bit different. Right? I remember when I, I lost my grandmother, there were conversations that I could have with folks that I could no longer have. Right. There were people that I was friends with that I thought maybe weren't treating their grandparents in a particular way with a way that I, I thought was the best. And I had to remove myself from that space for a while because I just couldn't, that was not something I could be in. Some of my teams or my extracurricular activities, as soon as an aspect of my identity switched, changed, evolved, I had to reevaluate whether I belong in that moment, whether I could belong in it later, or if it was something that I should just give up. Because I also think that we don't need to belong in all the spaces that unless you you want to actually belong in that space... But I'm like, I don't need to belong everywhere, but I would like to belong in the spaces that I choose.
2: Great. And then to wrap it up, I want you to have the final word. What is the best advice you have for folks anywhere on this trajectory in finding belonging?
1: Do a little Mm -hmm. deep dive on yourself and think about the aspects of your life that are really important and the aspects of your identity that are really important. When I talk to law students, a lot of their questions are about the work. You know am i going to get access to the best clients am i going to get access to the partners and all those questions are important but i always push back and i'm like but what have you thought about for your day-to-day right what is important for you as a human for me i'm goofy i'm silly i need that i need the humor in everything Mm -hmm. that i do and so i was looking for a place where i could be that funny and still be respected and still be taken seriously as a professional can I, make, you know, make a joke, meme, use some some emojis? Absolutely. Some of my clients send them to me actually, and that doesn't make me less of a lawyer or less of a professional. So I urge you to think about those aspects of yourself, of your identity, of your personality that you treasure. Is it your family relationships? Is it your friendships? Is it, you know, your blackness? Is it your latinidad? Is it the mixture those things and see whether you can bring those things to that space, right? And those aspects of yourself are supported and you can have those hard conversations. And even if they're not supported yet, is there a possibility for them to be supported for those conversations to be had and for a path to be created so you can open those doors and keep them open?
3: Oh, we need to end there. That's perfect. Thanks for listening to Building Belonging with your hosts, Tania Martinez-Gallanucci, Angie Avila, and Mary Ellen LaRosa. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Lisette Duran, discussing her career trajectory, making space for her identity, and finding belonging. Head to the description to find a link to sign up for our e-newsletter. If you're keen on making an impact and being a part of our work, become a City Bar member and join a committee. The membership form with the one-time admission fee waived can be found in the description. We would like to thank our advocates of the Diversity and Inclusion Celebration Dinner, which will be held on October 27th at the City Bar Building from 6 to 10 p.m. Locklord, New York Life Insurance Company, Davis Wright, Tremaine, Labaton Suchero, Jenner and Block, Ackerman, Fragman, Cleary Gottlieb, Wilson Elser, and Davis Polk and Wardwell. That's all for this episode. See you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Building Belonging, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.